This is Hawaii Rising, a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund. I'm Suyuno Amos. I'm Kenji Cataldo. Our guest today is Loke Aloa from Hui Koloko Honokohau. Hui Koloko Honokohau is dedicated to protecting, preserving, and advancing the natural and cultural resources of Koloko and the customary and traditional practices of Native Hawaiians of the area. Through practice as Kia'i Loko, or fish pond guardians, they aim to restore, conserve, and manage the area's water, natural, cultural, scenic, historic, and marine resources for the benefit, education, and enjoyment of the community and future generations. Loke shared about the importance of the loko as a safe and healing space and the particular way that safety can be experienced in the body when queer and trans community get to be on the aina. We felt this was an impactful insight to uplift during this Pride Month. All right, today we are speaking with Loke from Hui Koloko Honokohau, and I'm really excited to be talking with you today. Loke, do you want to just um, introduce yourself and also give us a little introduction to um, Hui Koloko Honokohau? All right, great. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Loke Aloha, and I'm a Kanaka Maoli. I'm based uh, kind of a little bit everywhere, but my practice is uh, grounded at Koloko Fish Pond in Kona. Uh, my family comes from Kona ancestrally. Both my grandpa and my grandmother's lineage binds me to that district and then also to, to this uh, particular place where my cultural practice is grounded. Uh, and that leads me into Hui Koloko Honokohau, and we are totally grassroots. Uh, fed by the people and the hands of those who come and those who can offer us kokua, which is to, um, which is tailored to really three broad goals. And those goals are really to perpetuate Native Hawaiian traditional and customary practices related to lokoi'a or fish ponds and ocean fisheries. Uh, it's also to protect and enhance the ecosystem that gives life to our hana, to our practice. And so that leads us down the road of water work and water protection uh, and other things like that. Um, and then finally, to educate and to inspire other individuals uh, in all things locally uh, or fish pond. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction, Loke. Um, can you start by just kind of describing um, Koloko for us, that area, what it looks like, and maybe share, you know, any mo'olelo about the place? Yeah, so Koloko, I think if we're using today's markers, uh, the best bet is if you've flown into uh, Kona Airport, uh, you've probably passed over or seen Koloko Fish Pond, uh, conveniently located across the street from Costco, another grand marker of Kona. Um, uh, the pond itself, so Koloko Fish Pond is an 11-acre fish pond. It's a local kuapa, and a kuapa basically means it has a rock wall that separates it from the ocean. Um, this pond is located in the Ahupua of Koloko, and Koloko is located in the traditional region of Kekaha Vaiole or Nakona, uh, or more simply put as the Kekaha region, which is usually known as one that's uh, pretty dry because we don't have any surface water that's constantly flowing. Uh, our water system is uh, beneath the ground, and this is really patterned uh, in the three traditional regions of Kona. The regions are directly tied to the watersheds and how water moves through the land, which guided how people could live um, in this place. Uh, the pond itself, you know, I think, of course it has a rich history, 
you know, and a lot of it is tied to, you know, Ali'i lineage, Kamehameha lineage and so forth and the Paniolo times and a lot of things that changed. But I think a marker for something more recent for myself and for others is uh, the early onset when we became a state. And a lot of the areas in Kona along that region were being slated for development. And basically at that time, uh, the plans for Koloko Fish Pond and the other neighboring ponds, was it was going to be filled up and catering to tourist development. So they were going to put bungalows and all kinds of things that would have forever altered this landscape. And it's so precious, um, not only for the pond, and if you don't know what ponds are, it's not only to feed the people, but it's to feed the fishery. And that's really the big kuleana of being, when you malama loko ia, you don't only malama loko for ohana and community, for the kaiulu to be nourished and to eat, but it's also because you're a steward to the kanaloa realm. Um, and so our fish are intended to go back out and to come back in for different reasons. Um, but basically back in the 1970s, there was a big push to develop this pond. Um, and there was great resistance, and a lot of it was by some heavy-hitting kadaka of Kona and of the other side of the island of the east side who came together to protect this landscape. And, you know, I talked to the talked to all, some people from back then, like, why did you guys go to the park service, you know? And a lot of it is just the mana'o of there wasn't a lot of the organized trust that we have today, uh, the organizations that the kind of land management and stewardship um, models we see weren't present then. And so it was really trying to create um, something new for its time, though it's very popular today. Um, and so building on that legacy, we follow the path of the kupuna to malama loko'i'a um, and to perpetuate all things Hawaii, all mea Hawaii. Very cool to hear that history. Um, I guess maybe now that we've kind of got a sense of the place a little bit more, um, if you want to describe some of the um, work days or the programs or the ways that you kind of... Um, achieve those three goals that you mentioned at the beginning? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it changes through time. And we started, our hui started about eight years ago. And uh, we were a lot younger. Um, and since then, we've had, we've grown and we've, uh, not too much, but we've had children. And so we have babies. And so the work through time definitely changes to the community that attends these days. And so we have a core hui. Uh, make sure that there's a space, we hold space for community and for Kanaka to enter. Um, and then also too, you know, we have seasonals, folks who can join us when there's no sports and whatnot. But through all of these combined efforts, which is really what I'm trying to get to, is it's not just us. Uh, we really are just kind of like the kua, the structure for the hui. Um, a lot of it is just, it's volunteer. And so if you're looking at education and whatnot, um, we work with students, you know, we work with anywhere from preschool through university, we generally get a lot of university or high school students that come through and we try to network with um, local high schools that are nearby for traveling purposes and whatnot. And the curriculum or the educational AINA-based component uh, is really centers on local IA and bridges it with classroom instruction. And so we work closely with the teachers uh, or the professors to design a program that's fit for one, we start with the knowledge base because you can have a kindergartner who will know more than a university student just based on the fact that they've had contact with Lokoi'a. So we always try to consider um, what is the knowledge base of the learner? And then two, uh, what are the capabilities? What are the interests? What are the hopes? And then from there, we start to build out. Uh, and so we host uh, high school students, university students. We do 
summer programming, we do fall programming. It's really whenever the teachers are able to come through to the space. And we generally never deny a request. We make every effort to be out there with our students, with our community. Um, another component is protecting and enhancing the ecological health of the environment. And this really comes to the active days that are all in the local. Uh, the work that we're doing is really to rehabilitate a space that's like 600 to 1,000 years old. Uh, but just from the time of statehood and a little before, really from the Mahele, you see our people being removed from this aina, you know, whether it's by force or by, you know, a forced choice because the economy was changing. The, recipro the reciprocal economy wasn't there anymore. Um, and so we're bringing back that system, um, of course, trying to respond to at the same time to climate change. So a lot of invasive species removal, opening springs, uh, freshwater springs, which are crucial to the health of fisheries and the fish pond. Um, and then we also do our monitoring. And so our kilo monitoring and we monitor different components monthly of um, different creatures and beings that rely on the fish pond beyond us to really gauge local health and to monitor it for the long haul when we do the pass off to our kiki and other kiki who are interested um, through an intergenerational database, um, which leads me into the advocacy, which is so, so, so important. And it's really translating on the ground observable changes, um, whether they be good or bad, and directing those things right into the county council chambers, hitting it at the legislature, um, having sit-downs with people who, who are just interested in wanting to learn and know how they can donate their time or their efforts or their money um, in order to protect this ecosystem with us. Um, and that's kind of a big one that we'll be uh, heading into very, very soon. Um, and perpetuating practice is really, I think every day it's as much as we can being out there. And a lot of our work is guided by Ikikupuna. So we're not trying to reinvent any wheel. Uh, we're looking to what the oral histories have told us, what people have shared with us. And those are the things that we're trying to ho'i ho'i, we're trying to bring back. Yeah, um, and once we attempt to do that and keep doing it, then we can start to adjust. But first you have to stick to that framework that the kupuna have given you uh, before you start to go and uh, tweak things just, just for your own knowings of why things were the way they were once done. How have you seen students and other people coming to work days responding to this, you know, working in the local? And I guess the second question would be curious about the, the keiki now that are being raised by you folks um, kind of partially at the local, or I guess, what, what has that been like for, for all of these folks? Yeah, you know, it's, I think the community work days are really, um, they really give us a chance to co connect with community members. Like, we're, you know, it's not, we don't want to have political discussions. We are not interested in any type of debates or what's, you know, we don't want to do that. We want to get to know you as a community member. Um, outside of all these other spheres that we operate in. Um, and it's pretty inspiring. You know, I think we get, yeah, we get all kinds of people who have seen that place not really tended to. And so when they see that transformation, they're really taken aback by what's happening. Um, and it's a source of hope, I think. A, hope, a place of hope for people to come and start projects in their own vahi. I think we've also seen that is when we started like seven years ago, um, you know, we were birthed out of the Mauna Kea movement too. A lot of us found each, up, each other up on Mauna Kea. 
um, a lot of folks are also trying to figure out, hey, how do we also do this kind of work? And so some of the folks who haven't seen them for seven years because they've started their own projects in their own backyards, like in their own ahupa'a, which is entirely the goal. It's to activate, it's to stimulate, it's to support each other. Um, so that's been a really big one um, there. And then also we just hosted a field school uh, with some university students uh, through the continent. And I think it was really inspiring um, to hear the takeaways of how things can be done. I think we're growing out of this old dinosaur age, I hope, of a system of control and oppression that really guides the way research and land work is done to a more collaborative, um, equitable practice that really centers community and the voices of those who are often uh, left to the side. Uh, our voices are becoming the leaders and the practitioners, which is really, really key to um, a more equitable future. Um, and then I'm sorry, what was the second question? Oh, with our kids. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, I think they're the joy of the work for all of us. I don't have any of my own keiki, but, you know, I get the benefit of um, other kia'i and their families coming into the space. And, you know, for most of our babies, uh, the first waters they enter are, you know, at Kaloko. Like, they don't usually go into the ocean until they've been introduced at the to the kupuna and to the lokoi'a. And so that's always a big occurrence for us and bringing that practice back. And, you know, I think for our pond, it's like at least 80 years, if not more, that there hasn't been uh, 80 to 100 years that that there's been this absence of kia'i loko that have been born. And so now having mothers out in the loko or supporting lokoi'a um, and from that womb, from the waters of the womb to the waters of the loko, the children are already in contact from the from that early stage with our fish pond and and everything we do is all is actually it's it's totally centered around the kids and so one example would be like the educational material we teach a lot of university students but we didn't have a lot of stuff for the kids like they don't you know we need things that make it fun for them and so growing curriculum that's really uh, responsive to our own children that we hope will be useful for other fish ponds and for other kids to learn about these experiences. And, you know, I always imagine, or I think about, you know, man, I hope they love it too, you know. And key for us is is keeping them together. I think a lot of things are changing in our Hawaii. And so we all really try intentionally to bring the children together because when you do this work, it's really love that holds you together. It's not the money, it's not the fame. And so to have the children love each other as they grow um, and feel safe in a community that will support them regardless of all situations uh, external. So I think there is a local ia component and the children know it. You know, they don't really want to poovies. They don't really want to do this stuff because they've been doing it. So it's really just trying to, you know, keep them in that hana, that practice, but really um, helping to create a loving community uh, that they are not only born into, but they'll hopefully be able to pass on as well. So I was struck by something that you said, um, I think in the introduction about, you know, part of um, being a Kia'i loko is, is not just about feeding the community, but about being a steward of the realm of Kanaloa, which is um, something that sounds really beautiful to me. And I don't think I've ever necessarily heard, um, you know, fish pond work kind of framed in that way. Um, and I just was curious if you could say more about what that means for you or how, what that looks like. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I think a lot of people or the way that I think most will, well, might understand it is through fish, I think, because a lot of times there's associated with a fish pond. Of course, you're going to talk about fish. So it's, it's fish. And it's, so it's definitely that, you know, and I think just off my head, I can just think of our anai or native mullet that really have to, they kind of move like salmon. They move in and out of the local EA and they have to go out to the fisheries, the ocean, and what they come into the fish pond because of the fresh water, right? And so Kane and Kanaloa, those are, those are two gods that are really kind of oftentimes put together as one, one akua, right? A shared akua with shared traits. Uh, so if I look at it through like an ecosystem perspective, I think of those native mullet and the ways that they come into the local because of that strictly fresh water, which creates these environments for them to grow. But then also thinking to that oftentimes, which is that Kanaloa Nui or that vast expanse and looking out to the deep sea ocean, um, which is also where they eventually will move out to. Um, so those are things in like the physical realm that I think of. And then to uh, really lifting up Kumu Roxanne Stewart. Um, and the Kia'i Kanaloa network, and it's really to servitude to the Kanaloa as a way of really being more watchful and more present for our Kanaloa that are out at the ocean. And so part of that is, you know, if you're having um, sea entanglements or deaths um, or poaching, right, which is happening, people are shooting or killing these beings at Kanaloa um, for whatever reason, but where did they go after that? And that's where we come in, the Kia'i Kanaloa on different islands um, to be of service and to help with that transition of the Akua so that they can return. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that really answers it, um, but it does it from that physical sense of trying to take care of the environment that where we see Kane and Kanaloa, that give life to them. And then also like the literal taking care of the Ivi Kupuna uh, to make sure that they don't end up in refrigerators or rubbish dumps, you know, that's not how you treat Akua. I feel like I, I know you talked about this a little bit already, but I um, I was just wanting to hear more, I guess, about the, the specific kind of transitions that this place has gone through. You know, you mentioned that it's it's gone through different like um, ownership situations. And, and I guess I just would like to hear the details of that. A lot of people you said have seen it in different states and are taken aback by the way it is now and just like kind of a, a clearer picture of what that looks like. You know, one of my earliest memories is seeing it as a first encounter and putting my cousin and I were in an off-limits area and he stepped into the local and it's, it was really mucky and hauna and that's because there's a lot of like dead, like things are literally dead, like there's no life, there's no oxygen. And so when you puka, when you step into this muck, you really smell, smell death and that's because it's not breathing, like it's literally not breathing. And I think that too, that sadness of knowing what once was and what is not um, was also a source of inspiration to, yeah, to bring love into the space. I think that's really what I'm doing. What I'm trying to do is bring more love into the space. You know, I think I was just thinking the other day, um, I was thinking, you know, if they never got rid of the Hawaiians to begin with, like if they never got rid of these families, I'm not saying that it would be like an over-romanticized future of like present of where we are, but I'm saying like it would have been in a lot healthier state. Like if those Ohana who knew these fisheries, right, and that time, because a lot of the kupuna have passed on, if they were still there and they didn't, they weren't forced to leave, what I would have been able to walk into. Um, I'm already a beneficiary of those who came before, but really at the ecosystem level and the health, that's really what the stewards are there for. And, you know, I think, you know, in, in early Hawaii, this pond, specifically the Koloko fish pond was 
under the stewardship of the Kamehameha lineage and Kamehameha I, um, to be specific. Um, and it was always cared for by his chiefs or his Kaukawali'i um, or like the lesser chiefs who had affiliation um, with them. Um, and so through the time of the Mahele, when land was starting to be, you know, people had to pay off taxes or people were putting their land claims forward, Poloko was always claimed by the Kamehamehas. Um, and so it stayed, it stayed with them and it didn't pass on um, until later, I believe after the death and transitioning over from Princess Pauahi. Um, and then finally the land um, was sold to ranchers. Um, and at that time, and through that transition, once it hits kind of that ranching area, and a little before, you're seeing this pond go from a state of community um, or like maybe even like konohiki led is probably more appropriate. It's like you have like a konohiki or a lead fisher overseeing things, keeping the health of the pond in relationship to the ocean in balance. Um, and then with these changes in land tenure, social changes are also happening in the ways that the lands are being cared for. Who can take care of them? if we're even going to take care of the land or if we're just going to profit off of it, because that's going to start to become the main trend is how can I capitalize capitalism, right? How to capitalize off of this. And so through time, you know, up into leaseholding, um, which is already when the cash-based economy is entering. Um, at that time, people are still actively raising fish. So people are still actively caring for the pond. Um, and then slowly as things kind of move forward, I think, you know, there's a lot of lag in the history, but really when you're looking at like World War II, um, there's um, a lot of kapu that are put down by the fisheries and it's and it's, ta it's talked about by the kupuna um, is the ocean fisheries being off limits to fishers who had kuleana to malama. Um, the fisheries, you know, like koa, they had, them, they had the kuleana of feeding the koa, right? That's crucial to the kaiaulu. Um, they had the kuleana of like malama lokui'a, but you cannot malama lokui'a, like because of the war and the, where, the way Americanization and militarization had impacted us, that was another thing that like pulled. And so through time, what you're really seeing is you're seeing the pulling out of the people from place. And simultaneously, you're also seeing the deterioration of ecosystem health. You're seeing the places start to suffer. Um, and at that final crux in the 1970s, um, when it was privately owned, there was still a lot of hooky hooky. And so things weren't just Hawaiians was for this. And then, Haoles was against it. It was actually very muddy. Uh, there was Hawaiians that were also against protection, right? I mean, you see that a lot today with Mauna Kea and other issues. Like, it's not just a Hawaiian versus a Haole thing. Like, we're all mixed. And a lot of it is that intersectionality that's really going to be the highlight of where we're falling on the, on the spectrum, I guess you could say. Um, but really, at that time, at least in the 70s, there was, like, huge mangroves growing in the pond. A lot of invasive plants were already starting to take over uh, the space um, and more of the springs are getting clogged, which is key to why ponds exist. Fresh water gives life to microalgaes and other beings that feed the larger, larger food chain. Um, and so at least, you know, for me, like from the 70s up until Lahui's arrival, there was really very limited, if any, actual stewardship, right? And I think if we're looking at fish ponds and sustainability, like these are one of the systems we can actually kind of get back going, right? Like they're sitting there waiting for us, um, but it just sat there, right? And it wasn't because nobody cares. It wasn't because nobody wanted to do it. It was because people weren't allowed to enter the Lokoi'a. And it wasn't until, yeah, the Hui came up through with the park service. And it's been a journey, um, but to put people, put Kanaka back on Aina, um, 
and I really reference Mauna Kea because it was a pivotal point for the government to fully see where we are today as Hawaiians uh, and what we're going to do, you know, peacefully in order to to help to protect the sacred, to bring back what we need to, because we're at such a crux, um, a really questionable place for our future. Yeah, what you were just describing about that process of pulling people out of the aina, and now, especially um, with the mobilization around Mauna Kea, this widespread of people going back to and 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 taking up stewardship of these places. Um, and I would just love to hear your thoughts on that, you know, return to Aina and where you see that all going. Yeah, um, I think that's a big question. I'll try my best to answer it. Um, but I think there were already a lot of people that were on the ground uh, doing this kind of work and sustaining it, you know, and so I want to lift those people off um, of these different local ia that were already in production, of these communities like Miloli'i, Ha'ena, who were very intact still. It was just for the other of us, like myself, who came from communities that weren't so intact to kind of bring us together again. And Mauna Kea became a place for us to at least connect and then now start to rise. And, you know, where we're heading, I think small is beautiful and small is necessary. And for ourselves, we're small, we're a small group and we look to other groups as well. But thinking in the ways that ecosystems work and thrive, it's off of the small acts, the small phytoplankton, the small microalgaes that are really giving life to these actual, like those deep sea pelagics, like the bigger chemo, right? Like we need those small, we need every, people may call them like kipukas, um, keep because of resistance or yeah like these little phytoplankton models to start to spring up I think will be very successful um, if we have many many of us rising in different locations it's so much harder uh, to keep track of us which is entirely necessary right confuse the colonizer like make it so impractical keep the networks small keep them intimate like all of that is not only for community but it also protects you in the long run um, I'm curious what uh, Hui Kolokohono Kohao is kind of looking toward for the future, what you um, kind of envision for the path that you're on, either short-term or like long-term future dreams. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the most pressing issues that we're currently facing is keeping water in the ground. Um because for our fish pond especially, like it's reliant on this fresh water with climate change. And so you're having rising sea levels, you're having saltier waters, increasing storm surges, um, you're having droughts, like everything, we're in a time of change. And so keeping that water in the ground um, is at the forefront of what's on my mind and my heart for this generation, because if we can't do that, I'm not really sure if there's gonna be a pond to pass on or what type of pond we'll be passing on, if any. Um, and so keeping water in the ground, building love around water, building appreciation around water, uh, building legislation around using every mechanism to keep water in the ground and allow it to continue to feed those ecosystems. But if I'm looking at the long run, when I'm old, what do I hope? I hope the kids still love each other. I hope they still play. I don't want them to stop playing. 
I hope they still go to the loco. I hope they they feel inspired enough by our work to inspire the next generation and their children. I hope that they still have that place. Uh, we'll do whatever necessary as practitioners of this place to keep that door open and to grow the space for others to enter. Um, it's also, yes, to give them this database because in this time, in this world, like you really need numbers and you need hard facts. And that's really what helps to sway conversations and build protective measures. And so to give them this work that we're trying to build for them. Um, and then also to grow community, a community of stewards that care, uh, that aren't there for the money, that aren't there for the ego, but are genuinely there for these ecosystems and are in servitude to the loco'i'o. Um, it's not in servitude to the hui. It's not in servitude to capitalism, uh, but it's in servitude to truly the land. Um, yeah, and whatever dreams they want. Yeah, hopefully they don't have to do a nine to five. Hopefully they could actually just live there if they wanted to. That'd be really dreamy because a lot of us are just trying to keep that, keep a roof over our heads. And it takes us away from protecting and serving a lot of these places that really actually need our help. Hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful vision. Um, thinking about the that longer time scale, and you mentioned also building legislation, I'm wondering if you want to talk more about the advocacy piece of your work, and in particular if there are um, things coming up that you want to flag for listeners of things to look out for or to testify for or, you know, anything like that. Yeah, so we actually, um, yes, and... Right now, it's a lot of the work that we're doing. It's actually with Native Hawaiian Legal Corp, who represents uh, myself and our interests as the Hui, and um, and a current issue that we have, which is going to start to just rock the roof right off of everybody's house, is uh, the groundwater availability in Kona. Um, and a lot of water models are basically extractive. There's not really a give back, and financials aren't give backs. Although they can be, it's generally not enough and it's not equivalent to the taking. Um, and so in the work that we're doing in Kona along with other families, it's really to build in and grow out measures of water neutral development. So ways that the environment is going to be protected even if water is withdrawn. Um, and then to, yeah, I think it would be interesting for others who are also dependent on groundwater systems. Um, to follow, I think a lot of our issues are parallel to those in Waianae and on Moloka'i um, and ways that we can maybe work together. Maybe we are, we don't even know it, but greater working together to advance um, initiatives to protect our water in Hawaii. That term you just used, water neutral development, that's not one I've heard before. Can you explain that in more detail? Yeah, so water neutral development is basically, it came out of a meeting with the Commission on Water Resource Management um, regarding this well, it's called the Ota well, um, and it's basically a well that they've companioned industrial science with affordable development to pass through the rains. Hopefully, I think that's what they were thinking. Um, but we all know how affordable housing goes, and we all know the damages of uh, industrial science. Um, and basically, water neutral development are measures created that are place-based by those who are often ignored or marginalized in the communities that also depend on water. And they come together. It's really grounded in that they need to be the ones to spearhead the, the initiative and come up with the list, uh, basically a to-do list that is basically an access list that starts to bring back balance into 
it even going to the rates people are paying for water, the amount of water people are getting, um, where their funds will go to watershed protection or enhancement actions. Um, you can also look at it as inventory and monitoring of our of our of our species of what's happening. You could go into water health, uh, periodic water health. So it really allows those communities of different backgrounds and different voices. But again, it has to be grounded in the voices of those who are often most ignored and marginalized uh, to create those ground-based initiatives and, and really drive it to the finish line. Thanks for um, clarifying that. And I guess just the other piece of that question maybe is how can anyone who's listening, who's interested in supporting your work, get involved or learn more? Yeah, that's great. Uh, folks, we have a Facebook and a Instagram and it's uh, We also have an email, huikolokohonokohau.gmail.com. Uh, the folks can email, they can message, they can just follow along if they're just interested and just wondering what's happening. Um, but those are just three simple ways. Yeah. Or visiting our website, which we try our best to keep uh, up to date. Um, you know, this is something I forgot about earlier, but I um, was wondering if you can also name some of the other folks who are involved in Huikoloko Honokoha. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, so it's not, um, so I'm one of the Po'o, and then we also have uh, Kimberly Crawford. Uh, she's a settler, but she's a powerful settler that really loves her Hawaii and loves her keiki. Um, and there's Chris Salinas. Um, he's a OEV male, also from Kona. Um, and their kiki or their children are Lehia, Po'o, and Lily. Uh, I also have my partner, uh, Namele Naipo Arsiga, and she's also a Po'o for the Hui, helping with our water um, data and other things like that. Uh, and then my whole family, my sister, um, my mom, her husband, who have really been like kitchen crew. They prepare the food for the kids, like breakfast, lunch, snack. Like, it takes a whole village of love and care to... Um, yeah, to not only take care of the local, but to take care of community. I really loved what you said earlier about um, the importance of the small things, uh, the small actions in an ecosystem. And, um, you know, that conversation about uh, the importance of keeping communities kind of small um, or, or close. And uh, this might be just kind of a redundant question because I really feel, you know, what a sense of community feels like just from hearing you talk so far. But um, yeah, I guess I just want to ask what community feels like and why it's important. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I had a lot of, I, I'm still learning. So I'm speaking as a learner always, but I think, you know, I'm learning for myself what community really feels like where I can feel most in my body and that's a good marker of when I'm in community and can be my most vulnerable self. And that usually happens in very, you know, small spaces, spaces of repeated interaction where trust is built, where food is shared, um, where you're meeting each other's families. And I think sometimes you'll enter into spaces that are pretty grand and that's kind of normal, but for that to be the constant and the norm, those two things meeting together, that's kind of the pinnacle of community. Um, and then, too, I also feel like my community, which is important to me, is like a queer community, a trans community, a mahu community, because I feel like for my own self, like the friends that I have, like when I'm in those communities with them who also enter into the local ea, um, 
it feels like a safer space. You know, it feels safer because we're with each other. It feels more loving because we understand what each of us are going through in our bodies when we're not in this space, right? And it's all those things that we don't have to deal with. We don't even have to think about how am I going to keep myself safe uh, when we're in these communities that are really embedded um, and held together and bound by love. Thank you. That was really beautiful. So I wanted to ask, this is thinking about kind of the learning you were just sharing, but also um, earlier about com- coming back to this um, theme of groups all over the place, small groups um, kind of springing up and, and, um, and, and taking action. And just wondering if you have any learnings from, from going through that process that you'd like to share for anybody out there who is you know, thinking about that in their own communities or is seeing a need and wondering, you know, should I be the one to take this on or not? You know, it can be kind of scary or daunting. So just any learnings you have about about that process? Yeah, um, I think a practical one is do your research. Uh, there's probably a bunch of folks who are on the issue already. And just as a way to be mindful of those who have come before is just Try your best to learn as much as you can on your own before you ask for help uh, so that you're not being redundant in the asking. That helps to show that you're prepared uh, for the fuller initiative of what is actually to come. Um, and the other one is just be compassionate to yourself. I think, you know, I, I think of myself early on in the movement. I think I could have been a lot more compassionate um, through the whole process. Um, of just where I was at in relationship to others and don't compare yourself to other people, just arrive in your fullest self and know that that's enough. And even if that's all you go in with and you forgot all the other numbers and the testimony, that's fine. Like that stuff really doesn't actually matter. Uh, if you're not in your body, then you're not in the moment. And it's all about being in the moment. So, so be compassionate. Don't be too hard on yourself and really just practice being you. That's probably the best advice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, I would also say, like, have queer folks lead. Like, that's kind of like my dream world is, like, trans and queer folks are all leading, you know? Like, the ways that we can maybe inspire creativity and have our creativity just enter into these spaces without having to, like, dodge and try to make ourselves legitimate or seen, right? Because there's these processes that are happening socially, but, like, center the voices that are often ignored. Uh, center those voices, lift those voices up. Those are the voices that are going to be the voices of change that are going to give us real-time solutions in the simplest and most fabulous fashion. Awesome. Well, is there any other wisdom you would like to drop on us or any other things you would like to share before we end our conversation today? Um, Nothing really, but just thank you, folks. Uh, Thank you to Hawaii People's Fund for the love and the support and for believing in us. Um, You know, we're part of a legacy of change makers, not just dreamers, but change makers. Uh, And yeah, anytime HPF is on island, uh, please do let us know. We'd love to have you folks out with us. Thank you so much, Loke. Yeah, mahalo for this conversation. Yeah, mahalo. Thank you so much. Hawaii Rising is a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund produced by me and me with additional support from Mickey. Our theme music is Revolutionary from the band Ukla the Mock, written and sung by Mickey Hui Hui. A big thank you to our community supporters and to you, our audience, for listening. Ahui ho!
Dem spending done need.